From now on, Oleg Gordevsky would live two distinct and parallel lives, both secret and at war with each other. And the moment of commitment came with the special force that was central to his character, an adamantine, unshakable conviction that what he was doing was unequivocally right, a whole-souled moral duty that would change his life irrevocably, a righteous betrayal. It says dirtbags in the title, we can do what we want. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. I make the money, man. I roll the nickels. The game's mine. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome back to the Enlightened Dirtbags podcast. Uh, my name is Jonah Condro, and I'm here with uh, my co-host, Dylan Knapp. How's it going, buddy? Uh, so for today's episode, we've got uh, some Cold War espionage. We're covering The Spy and the Traitor by Ben McIntyre. This book's pretty recent. Well, I guess it's about five years old, 2018. And this is not Ben McIntyre's first book on spycraft. He has written several books on on spies and uh, espionage and secret services and that sort of thing. So we're dealing with an author here that knows his game and it really comes through in this story. True to life story. Like this is 100% facts. It's like all the other books that we've been dealing with on the podcast. This guy ain't no slouch. And this book was surprisingly well written. And I enjoyed page after page after page after page. It was, it's one of those books that I think I've talked about it before where I kind of didn't want it to end. And as you read the book, you kind of get the sense like it winds up and it winds down. But I was just like, I almost didn't want to read it because I just wanted that book to be there so I could just read it and know what happens next, which is silly because the book's always there, right? And I think I've mentioned that before. So... Super great book, super great writing, and super stoked on The Spy and the Traitor by Ben McIntyre. You know, it's it's funny you say that about not wanting the book to end because I've always thought it would be a really cool superpower to be able to, like, make yourself forget things that you've read. You know, like if you have a really good book, you could just, like, erase it from your memory and go back and experience it again for the first time it's fun rereading things, right? You, you catch new, new pieces of information that you didn't catch originally. You know, the one I'll always go back to, especially for books or movies is fight club. Like you can go through that so many times and catch so many new things, but there's nothing like the magic of the first time through a book and really getting like the surprises and the mystery along the way and not knowing what's coming. Like I've always wished that I could just erase it from my memory and start fresh again. And this book the history and the facts and everything caught up in this chunk of time is so astonishing because we're 
I like to think that we're still living in the fallout uh, from a lot of these act or a lot of these events. A lot, like I, to me, it seems like the Cold War still is still is considered like I think you can make an argument that the Cold War is still current events, right? As much as we like to package stuff up and call it history, that's in the past. That already happened. That was long ago. That was back during a different time. Something about this era, I think, still rings true for now. So I, it's not like we're reading about some faraway place or thing, extraordinary things that happened in an extraordinary time because it was different and da-da-da-da-da. You know, technology certainly was different back then. And we'll talk about like some of the spy tricks and some of the spy craft, some of the techniques that they used really weren't that high tech, right? And I think a lot of the th- a lot of the things that Ben McIntyre covers in this book, I think they're still applicable today, right? I don't know if there's like a lot of career spies. I imagine there probably is. There probably is more now than there ever was. But this book, I feel, can be just as current as you need it to be. Yeah, I mean. Really, there's still lingering tension between uh, Russia and the United States, right? Like, it's it's definitely something that hasn't entirely gone away. I would say it's, it's I mean, at least we're not in like a potential nuclear standoff for the most part. But you still hear about it all the time in the news, right? Like, all the time, everyone's worried about what crazy shit Putin's going to do, you know? Like, and I mean, look at right now with... Um, Russia and Ukraine being at war, it's really increased global tensions and everyone's kind of like, how do we approach this delicate situation? You kind of got to walk on eggshells when it comes to uh, dealing with Russia politically, right? Like it's, it's a big deal. So, I mean, and I think you really hit the nail on the head there with, um, with that era and the spy craft. Like I would assume, obviously I'm not a professional in, uh, in current uh, technology of, you know, uh, espionage, but I would assume there's a lot more drone stuff and satellite stuff and whatever, right? It's not so hands-on anymore. It's not boots on the ground as much. Whereas like back then it was really like, get people there. Like, how do we get someone in country? You'd have to have a huge background of paperwork, right? And they, they talk about this back and forth of like, as soon as one of the spies gets marked, like that's it. They're out of country and like you're probably pushing paper now, right? Like you get a desk job because you're marked as a spy. So they, they can't really use you and you'd have to have like this, this training and this background and all the paperwork to make someone look legitimate at what they're doing and, uh, and get them out there and rely on that, like eyes on information, which I feel like has probably really changed now. And my, my favorite thing about it is like the signal work, right? Like when you've got to make contact the way they've got to like leave signs for their handlers and whoever like that stuff really cool, man. And it, it really makes the, you know, the, uh, the spies of that era almost feel superhuman, like the memory you would have to have. Cause you can't put things down on paper, right? Like all that's incriminating. It's gotta be in your head, all the information you gather, the conversations you have, the, all the different plans for leaving signals for a pickup or, or a contact or whatever it is, like even just to line up a brush contact to have hand off a piece of paper, like there's like three steps ahead of time about leaving a bottle cap in a windowsill of some obscure bathroom somewhere. And on top of that, all the steps you have to do to shake your, t- your potential tail before you even get there, right? 
we came across this already in one of the previous books we read, Life Undercover by Amaryllis Fox. And she even mentioned, like, depending on how you operate and how aggressive you are with your contacts, like, you could blow your cover, and that's it for you. Like, you're you're out of the field. Once people know who you are, you're done. You're going back to Langley, and you're going to push papers, right? And so I think what really comes through here with Ben McIntyre's uh, account of the KGB double agent is that he was so good at finding that fine line and walking it. As cliche as that is, he wrote the masterclass on walking the fine line about when to push for more information, what to withhold, really what needs to be given, what needs to be, you know, stay in the sealed folder, right? Like, it almost seems like he was able to read the future in this strange way and knew what to give, what to hold, what to do, right? Because throughout this entire story about the spy, you're just like, man, it just, at any page, at any moment, if somebody would have raised their eyebrow to something that he would have done, that would have been it. He would have been busted and it would have been a wildly different outcome. Not just for the spy, but for, you know, global politics at the time. And I think we should probably introduce our protagonist. Yeah, so uh, we're talking about a man named Oleg Gorjevsky. And uh, again, I'm really glad that I listened to the audiobook this time because when I read the book the first time, I was in my head calling him Oleg Gordievsky. And, uh, you know, because I don't speak Russian. And uh, in the audiobook, at least, they say Gorjevsky. So it's it sounds... I don't know. It sounds like the way a Bond villain would say it, so I think it's probably correct. So before we get going with Oleg's story, I just want to kind of just refresh us on what was kind of going on uh, at this time when Oleg uh, was a KGB officer. He was a colonel in the KGB. So back in the day when we had good old Joseph Stalin created, and I don't know what the acronym is for, but he created the uh, NKVD. And that was really the precursor to the KGB. And I believe it was in like the 30s. It might have been 33 summers in there before the Second World War. Stalin was like really flushing out people who were not about communism. You know, even like one comment and your neighbor reports you, that, that would be it for you, right? There was this huge purge during that time where, you know, you say one thing, questionable to someone in a store, at work, wherever you might be, they would turn you in, and that was it for you. You were getting drug away, and that was it. Well, and they even had an they had an issue as well with people just having personal grudges. Like, That's right. If yeah. someone said that you spoke poorly about Stalin or the NKVD, like that was it. They're not like, ooh, innocent until proven guilty. We got to get a recording. It was just like. Mm. Somebody said you spoke negatively about us, so that's it. To the LeBianca with you and uh, never to be seen again. So now if you'll uh, let me butcher some more Russian here. So the KGB, I think a lot of people, I think anybody who's ever read anything or watched a documentary or watched a movie about spies knows that the KGB is Russia's secret service, right? Or the, in this case, the Soviet Union's secret service. Now, I had no idea what the KGB uh, stood for, and so this is what it is in Russian. Komitet Gusardasvnyoy That's what KGB means, and it's like it's such a lame name because it just says 
it just means in English, like committee for state security. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, I think the, you know, the shortened form KGB itself almost has like an ominous ring to it. And then, yeah, if you were just like the committee for state security, you're like, well, that just sounds like a bunch of dudes sitting at a round table. Yeah. Like CIA, Central Intelligence Agency, right? The CIA, like that's, that's sexy. That's a sexy name, like Central Intelligent Agency, right? Like that's something like rock and roll that you can get behind. But you're just like, no, no, we're the committee for state, you know, safety. You're just like, that just sounds like something like a bunch of lame college kids came up with, right? Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and you know what is actually interesting about this is we're going to be diving in a lot in this book about, you know, the dark side of the KGB and, and, uh, you know, some of the paranoia, well, the mass paranoia really that kind of cripples that whole department. And, uh, in these books, when you're talking about espionage or in, in the cold war, it really does villainize, um, the Soviet union. Right. And, you know, when you think about MI5, MI6 and in, in uh, England, and then, the CIA in the United States, like they kind of come off as the good guys, but I really like the way this worked out because we do this book kind of covering the dark side of the KGB and the next book is chaos and we get to dive into <laughs> yeah. the dark side of the CIA. So I like completely unintentional. I wish I could say like, we're just fantastic at this and made this plan. That's going to like show both sides, you know, back to back and it's perfect, but I'm way too honest to do that. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it works out. It works out really well. So, Oleg, his family, his entire family was KGB. Like his old man was around in the Joseph Stalin days, and his family sort of survived uh, that era of you know Soviet Russia. And so when Oleg, and he's got an older brother that's in the KGB, and when like Oleg like tells his family that you know, okay, I'm going to join the KGB. It isn't really met with like celebration, right? It's kind of like, oh, okay. Like you can't really say anything against it because that would get you in trouble. Uh, And you don't necessarily want to celebrate it because it sounds like Oleg's father probably had a lot to do with like the innocent persecution of his like fellow countrymen, right? Like Ben McIntyre doesn't really get into that a whole lot, but you get the sense that it's, it's not necessarily a good thing and it's not necessarily a bad thing from like Oleg's family that he's joining the KGB. Yeah. I mean, it's probably a good thing in the sense that like, if you're going to be Soviet, it's probably the safest place to be is in the KGB. You know, you're not entirely above reproach, but at least, you know, compared to the basic citizen, you're probably much safer, more respected. You know, they have KGB housing when it comes to a career, it's probably the best choice, but yeah, he does talk a lot about, um, he wished he could have a real honest conversation with his parents about his own path in life and their path in life as well. Cause they talk a lot about his mother kind of, uh, keeping some secrets, uh, some, maybe some resentment to the KGB. And he talks especially about his father who, like you said, was, he took part in some, some dark things, you know, and, and there's a good chance that, uh, he had some negative feelings about that, but they, they would have been the standard, you know, like it, you'd be almost, you'd be so indoctrinated growing up in that era. And, uh, it, it's likely that you'd never be able to get him to speak the truth. If he did have any negative feelings regarding, you know, uh, Soviet Russia and the KGB and how things were handled. But, uh, I think it's pretty likely that his dad almost had a little bit of disappointment knowing that both of his sons 
could potentially go through the same things that he had to deal with, knowing that you're going to be put in a place where you have to put your country before your morals, really. And that's kind of backwards from the West and Western thinking, right? When you think of like Western individualism, right? You always put yourself like, fuck the government or fuck these guys or fuck that. You know what I mean, right? And you're just like, I'm just in it for myself. And like that might be a bit of a, a strong characterization of that attitude, but we're very individual in the West, right? Whereas in Soviet Russia during this time, when you're thinking of like the post-World uh, War II and into the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s with like the Cold War and the Berlin Wall and all that, right? There's actually a term that Ben McIntyre uses uh, to describe the the ideology of regular citizens, right? And he calls them like homo uh, sovieticus. You're an obedient uh, state servant forged by communist repression, right? And what a, like you can't get more succinct than that when it comes to what the ordinary citizen would have been absolutely pummeled by when it comes to propaganda and the state news and whether it might be fake, you know, we call it fake news now, right? Or, or stuff like that. Like you're just getting inundated and inundated and inundated, right? That you just get beaten down by the propaganda to the point where you can't even have an honest conversation, an honest, open conversation with your, with the members of your family in your household, right? Yeah. And, and you're not allowed to be exposed to anything else. Like, uh, he talks a lot about, um, like illegal publishings, like there's certain books you're not allowed to have poetry of the West, a lot of history, you know, you're, you're not even like, yeah, music, especially. Yeah. You're right. not allowed to consume any of their media. You know, it's one of those, like, how dare you ask these questions kind of things. Whereas like in the West, we do have a lot more exposure to other cultures and, you know, other systems of operation in, in uh, different countries. We kind of get to see it and be exposed to it. And, but, you know, litmus test our own society, right? Like, is this really the way we want to do it? But Russia, even now, but especially back then in the Soviet days, it was like, you can't have any old books, any history or cultural books on the West. Like, even though you would think that as a spy, you would want them to have that for them to understand and really be able to blend into those, um, you know, those societies. But it was almost like they knew that if, if, uh, if that information was presented to their, to their citizens that they might flip, you know, like, it's like, you can't, there's no other options. You're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to consider any other paths forward. This is how it is. And, and that's it. Just make the best of it. There's a, a moment Ben McIntyre's describing about Oleg's education, right? One thing that Oleg's really big into is like classical music, you know? Uh, that's that's sort of his thing is like listening to classical music that you just cannot get in the Soviet Union. And he's talking about how Oleg, uh, he gets some literature from the West, but it's heavily redacted, like it's just blacked out. So he's just like trying to read a novel or some poetry or even like an old magazine. And there's just paragraphs and sentences that are blacked out. So you're just catching these little glimpses of the culture in the West. And that's enough for Oleg to be like, Hey, I'm kind of into this. Right. And that's, that's what it, that's, that's the catalyst for how he shapes his career and taking language training and learning languages so that 
when he joins the KGB and he's coming up through the ranks, he gets to go on a posting outside of the Soviet Union, which would afford him more opportunities for listening to music and reading books and doing all the stuff that in the West we just take for granted, right? Yeah, 100%. And uh, actually, there's a there's an interesting part there when he gets posted to Denmark. Oh, and, yes. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> I, I really got to chuckle at this. Um, he gets there and he almost immediately goes and buys like three gay porn magazines <laughs> and like puts them on his table at his apartment, you know, like, and he just did it like out of curiosity because, you know, there's really no information about being gay in, you know, the Soviet Union, obviously. And, uh, you know, the only time they would accept them, I guess, in any way was when it was necessary, they would use them to like bait other spies. Like if you could catch someone, they would do a honeypot operation, right? Like that's right. The honeypot. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was illegal to be gay, but they would catch you and then use you to try to, you know, lure an enemy spy or even their own spies into a trap so that they could blackmail them with it. Right. But other than that, like it wasn't an option to be gay in the Soviet union. Right. So he goes and like buys these gay porn magazines cause you'd never find him in Russia. And he was like, I was just curious. Like, I don't even understand how they do the deed. you know. <laughs> like, and it's so funny because it, it seems like it could just be like a throwaway moment. And he likely thought that it was a throwaway moment, you know, like, Oh, I'll just go buy these. Like if you had those back in the Soviet union, like that's it, you're done. You're probably out of the KGB and everything there. He was like, well, I could just go buy these and, and see what it's all about, right? And it gets noticed by uh, by Danish intelligence, and uh, <laughs> and they like try to catch him in a honeypot because they think he's gay now and can't figure out why it didn't work. <laughs> like, and it like goes into his file, like his intelligence <laughs> file. They like put it in there that like possibly gay. And they're just like trying this approach and like, I don't understand why this isn't working. And it's like, well, he's just completely uneducated about gay people and decided to go buy some magazines just because he could. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, I really like, um, that whole period of exposure in this book when you, you start to see a man who, like we said, is just, you know, all he's been exposed to is is Soviet rule and, and their way of life. And that's all, that's it. Right. Especially like you said, his entire family, like that was a KGB family. That's how it is. His dad was, his older brother is, he is now his first wife works for the KGB. Like that's all the exposure he's had. And then his first experience with democracy, really, he gets posted and it's just, he's all of a sudden like the libraries, you can get whatever book you want. Like you could go get books about the Soviet union you know, in a Western library, whereas like in a Soviet library, you're not getting any books about the West unless it's propaganda or heavily redacted. You know, he just experiences these freedoms and sees, you know, just the way people live their lives much more openly. And he's just kind of blown away by it. Yeah. And it's a strange version of like, uh, job research, right? Like I need to read, I need to read this for my job. You know what I mean? He cultivates friends between themselves, between him and his friends that he cultivates. They all have interest in 
uh, Western culture, right? Where it, whether it's the the books, the music, or the whatever, there's some moments that Ben McIntyre is talking about when he goes on these postings outside of uh, the Soviet Union, where his coworkers are, you know, they they start they question him. They're like, you know, why are you reading this stuff? Why are you going to these places? And he's he's very clever because he says, well. I'm trying to figure out how the West works by reading their stuff so I can be a better spy for Russia, right? And you're like, oh, okay, right? Like, as as Oleg's co-workers, you'd be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like, maybe I'm not going to do that, but that makes sense that you would have to do that, right? And that's that's how he gets away with being able to consume uh, all this media and all this Western culture, and he can cultivate his his own passions for democracy and and uh and everything else right without raising too much suspicion suspicion definitely gets raised and i think he knows how to give those measured answers to your coworkers, right you know when you got somebody at work and you they kind of know something and you can give them just enough to kind of get them off your back i think oleg he's an expert in being able to give measured responses to his coworkers. he's very good with people he understands uh, human psychology very well he can read people and play people really well and i think he almost kind of knew early on not necessarily that he would defect but you see it you know in the early stages before he even gets uh posted to any sort of democratic locations he uh like you said he kind of cultivates this friend group that has almost a western leaning interest right in their you know in their media and their books and their music and the the love for you know old poetry and all of that and i think it helps him protect himself from an early stage you know he's always got a reason that he's into it and and that kind of follows him right so it's not like oh you know he got posted you know out west and now he's all of a sudden got all these interests right like even back when he was you know, home, he had those interests as well. So it, it, it helps create this kind of umbrella that follows him through his whole career and, and helps keep him safe from too much questioning. And the ability to be able to consume Western media becomes important when he finally starts to learn English. And that's not one of the, he knows several languages, but English was not one of the first ones that he was trained in, not one that he learned right off the hop. And so then when, once he starts learning English, right, and then he's like really getting into the good stuff. To me, I, I would, I think I want to argue that. I think at that moment, once he starts to learn English, that's when he's starting to make the make the decision. Like he's starting to put that decision, that choice, uh, in motion to defect. Right? He's like, no, nope, I had enough of this. I'm going over there. Yeah, and even um, when he gets married to his first wife, it almost seems like a strategic maneuver, right? Like. He knew that a single, a single man is probably not getting posted out of country. They liked to send married men out of country because they would send you out, establish, you know, kind of your cover there. They would bring you home for a while, which they kept, you know, pulling agents back. Like it was like kind of three years was your window. You probably weren't going to stay out of country for more than three years. And they liked to send married men because you would eventually have kids and your wife and kids would stay back home in Russia and if you tried to defect or came under suspicion, they could basically hold your family hostage back home, right? So he kind of knew that having a wife would be a way to get him posted out of country and get some more exposure. So it kind of seemed like he knew it ahead of time. But then he marries like an extremely, you know, 
KGB kind of woman, you know, like KGB, like through and through his first wife. Like there is, there's nothing else in her blood and her bones, right? It is just, she is just constructed of KGB material. Like that is it. Like, I don't think that Oleg ever had the sort of marriage that you would think or hope for yourself or other people, right? I And I believe Ben McIntyre calls it like a marriage of convenience. This is shore up your point on, on having like a strategic partnership with a woman just so you could get the opportunity to leave the country. Yeah, and it, it almost seemed the same for her too, right? Like he's moving up through the ranks. Uh, it's a good good move for her because she gets sent out of country with him as well, as well originally, and uh, being tied to you know such a respected officer is going to be beneficial for her career. But it never really seems like there's any like a real passionate connection, and she's even like gets on his case about about the Western media that he consumes too, right? Like she almost feels like a handler at some points you know or he has to like keep himself in check even at home like he can't he can't share any of his uh soft side for the west at all even at home it's every day of his life is just pretend to toe the line you know and uh, like around around your colleagues and around your wife and then even then when you're alone you still have to be careful because other countries, you know that other countries are surveying you at the same time, right? So if they catch you looking like you might be someone that they could flip, they're going to start trying to flip you. And as soon as someone makes an attempt, it's it's pretty obvious that they know you're a spy and you're going to get sent home for good. So he really has to keep his cards close to his chest for almost the entire career. Oleg never had the illegal status or the... Um the status of like um what it, what was it called in life undercover like uh, or i think in amaryllis fox's case she talks about non-official cover right that's where when you think of a spy like that's what you think of non-official cover you're, you're just like pretending to be some person living a life but you're actually just spying for the cia right oleg wasn't that kind of a spy uh because he had like diplomatic papers he was allowed to leave the country and and work in uh as a resident in the like a they call it like a residentura right which is just the basically like an office a diplomatic office for the soviet union in another country right so he was there officially even though he was a spy right so he wasn't he wasn't like he was wearing like a fedora and a trench coat kind of a spy right he was more of a suit and a tie and a briefcase kind of a spy A fedora and a trench coat is not what I thought of as the common attire for a spy. That sounds fake, like fake someone mustache. flashing people in a park. <laughs> yeah, he wore he he routinely wore a fake mustache and fake glasses. The glasses with the nose attached. Yeah, that's right. They'll never know who I am. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so it really is like I have a lot of respect for uh, for Oleg in this book. Not not just um, you know, obviously I'm gonna be a little biased. Like he is a double agent for the West and really assists them in a lot of ways, which obviously benefits our lives because, like you said in the beginning, things could have gone very differently had had Oleg's story not p- panned out this way. But when you look at someone growing up under some an opp- such an oppressive regime, you know, in a family of KGB members, married to a, a wife who's KGB, and then you're sent out of country on official cover, right? And 
so you technically like as a diplomat like you have a legitimate job to cover for as well right you have to like you can't just be running around doing spy work all the time that's pretty obvious so you're kind of hiding your appreciation for the west from your wife and obviously from the kgb and then you're pretending to do your job as a diplomat while also gathering spy information and also he almost kind of dangles himself out there a little bit for the west kind of hoping they'll pick something up but not enough for anyone else to pick it up like he's really like he's he's got five or six hats on pretty much all the time and the pressure would be immense especially like we said you know like if the CIA catches you doing something fishy or starts to lose trust for you, you're getting sent home. You're probably, you know, having your agency paperwork revoked. You're, you know, there'll be an investigation and whatever. If you haven't really done anything wrong, then you're just back to being a citizen, you know, or basic civilian. Whereas with the KGB, like, if there's any suspicion at all, like, sometimes people just disappear and the paranoia is out of control. Like he said, his coworkers always accusing each other. And they're all trying to like one up each other and, and, and knock each other down off the totem pole so they can move up. And they're basically all like, it's so funny. There's this interesting culture, you know, where he's working, where they're all like very like proud to be KGB members and like toe the line and whatever. But they're also pretty much just scamming the KGB, Yeah, you know, like making up <laughs> contacts that they met with and just going out for extravagant lunches to expense it and then just making up that it was like with a contact to just like get more money and stuff right like and get promotions so it's this weird like they're all paranoid of each other because they're all kind of scamming the kgb but then they're also all like very proud to be kgb agents it's a weird situation man <laughs> and this is kind of getting a little bit ahead but when oleg finally gets his post in uh, to England and he's not really doing a great job and what ends up happening is MI6 kind of feeds them uh, I think they call it chicken feed right is it yeah the the kind of information like chicken feed is just something that you give the animals just to fatten them up right but there's no real nutrition in it so the MI6 kind of they don't want to lose him because he's so valuable and he's feeding so so much uh, crucial intelligence to to the West that they basically start doing Oleg's job for him because he's not really producing that much stuff for the KGB. And then that's when his career really starts to take off when he's at that moment, right? Because MI6 is basically doing his homework for him. <laughs> right. And man, we really run into an intense situation here. So... There's a few, you know, critical moments that happen right around this time. Obviously, his relationship's falling apart because the foundation was made out of wet cardboard. <laughs> and uh, he he ends up meeting another Soviet girl who kind of appreciates that that um, that poet side of him, you know, like his his love for all the different medias and almost more of who he really is. Not entirely, but obviously he never tells her that he's, you know, starting to work for the West. But he shows her a little more of his true self, and she really appreciates that about him. And there's like a legitimate, um, passionate relationship there. So he starts having an affair. So you're talking about someone who is a KGB agent on official cover in, uh, I think, was he in England at this point? I think he was. And uh, his wife, so he's hiding 
from the West as a KGB agent, but then also feeding information to the West as a double agent. And then he has to hide all that from his wife and then is also having an affair. And the girl he's having an affair with doesn't know that he's a double agent and his wife doesn't know that he's having an affair. And he also has to hide this affair. Look at this. Lots of people have affairs and get caught just because they're dumb about it or it's bound to happen. It is a shockingly small world for how many people there are in the world. Somebody knows somebody who knows somebody and you get busted, right? Now imagine trying to have that affair when there's three different countries' intelligence agencies watching you at almost all times. Like, and he almost gets caught at one point. Like he walks out of like an apartment with her and like comes straight across another agent that would, all that would have taken is like, why do you have any reason to be on this part of town sort of thing? The pressure he would be under would be unimaginable. And then he's just, and really, he's just trying to, to do what's right in his mind, right? Like his emotional connection to his wife is non-existent. So he's trying to have this connection with someone else. And it's the same thing that he's trying to do with the West. You know, he never defects to the West because of, you know, money or opportunity or whatever. It's all on moral grounds, right? And in fact, they try to offer him money in the beginning because it's great for them, right? If you take a payment from the other side, they can keep record of that and then use it to blackmail you if they need to. But he refuses the money. He doesn't want it. He's taking on this immense risk. 100% could get him killed. And he's doing it all because morally he feels like it's what what's right. He really identifies more with the Western ideology than with the Soviet ideology, right? Everything he's doing, it feels like he's doing it for the right reasons as a good human being. But then all of those things just stack on so much more risk and so much more stress. It, it really built a lot of respect for me, the fact that he never really does anything selfishly. It's, it's pretty much always based on just what feels like the right thing to do. Well, I think the ending, he might be a little bit, you might be able to say he's a little bit selfish just because of the major decision he decides. And I, the major decision that he makes uh, near the end of his story, uh, as Ben McIntyre tells it, but I don't know if we want to get into that. That might be spoiling too much of the story. We might want to leave that one to the readers if you're interested. But that aside, that big decision aside, I think you're right. And that's what makes... Oleg, very interesting as a historical character in Ben McIntyre's account. And let's not forget, too, that there's a, there's a lot of uh, other stories that are intertwined in Oleg's that involve specific agents within MI6, uh, within in England, within the CIA. And some of the, uh, especially the one, I, I believe it's the one that accidentally sells them out uh, it's a CIA, CIA agent that goes rogue and starts selling secrets to the KGB. He was doing it exactly for that because he wanted the money, right? He's selling those secrets. And there's a bit of a comparison that Ben McIntyre is drawing between the CIA agent that's like, okay, fuck the West, um, all about Russia for some reason. But he's not really all about Russia. He's not really about communism. He's just in it for the money, right? Because he's kind of a dirtbag. He's got lots of loans. He's got a wife that spends lots of money and has really high taste, and he's just trying to keep up with her expensive taste, right? And when you're comparing someone like Oleg that's, hey, I like classical music, and I like poetry, and I like, you know, learning about democracy and 
this like weird culture of individualism and then stuff like that compared to the CIA guy that's just like, yeah, I need money for cigarettes, right? And so it not only does it make Oleg more of the good guy, more of the protagonist, right? Even though that he is, you know, selling out his own country in a lot of ways, but it makes his character more compelling that he just, he's like, no, I don't need the money. I just want to do it because this is the right thing to do. Yeah, and there's a bunch of times where, um, you know, he's on the verge of disaster and they give him the opportunity. They're like, look, you've you've given us a ton of useful information. Like, if you want to walk away from this now, like, you can. We will, you know, we'll bring you over to England and uh, and we'll keep you safe and we'll set you up. Like, you'll be good, and, uh, but it's up to you. And he's like, no, there's so much more work we can do. There's so much more information we can gather, like, 100% risking his life and he just decides to push through and take the risk just because he thinks it's the right thing to do you know and you know this isn't just your average spy story right like this plays a huge part in history there's a moment when the west is doing some kind of war games right they're trialing you know some formations and movements and whatever and russia starts to take it as oh they're using this as cover to prepare for a nuclear strike and so they talk about like we they their paranoia drives them to the point of like prepping their own preemptive nuclear strike because they have this weird issue you know in the kgb where if your superior says hey we think this is what's happening we need you to go out and gather information to see if that's the case you really don't want to prove your superior wrong there's like this crazy confirmation bias. So if your superior says, hey, we think the United States is prepping for a nuclear strike and we need you to go out and gather information to see if that's what's happening, they will just go find anything they can to prove that's the case. And they had the craziest strategies. They would have people sit outside of government buildings to see if there's more lights on at night because a busier government building might might uh, signal that they're having people work overtime because they're preparing something or is there more cars in the parking lot is you know our food supplies being bought out more the most interesting one is they didn't understand what a blood bank is <laughs> and so they thought it was like a like a regular bank where you'd go like they store blood and you go buy blood that's what they thought happened in the west they didn't realize that it's like volunteer donors providing the blood so that it can be used to people that need it. And so they were like, go to the blood banks and see if you can find any signs of the American government buying up extra stores of blood <laughs> in preparation for a war. And of course, in typical KGB fashion, the information they're getting back is anything that that proves their theory right because they want to go, Hey, you asked me to find, you know, proof of this. I found it. Look at me. Look at how good of an agent I am. Right. It's just everyone trying to get ahead. And if it wasn't for the information that Oleg gets to feed back, like it's very likely that, that there could have been a nuclear war at this point, or at the very least an escalation to a hot war from a cold war during that window of time. And he's feeding information right back to MI6. Who's able to feed it back to, to Langley, you know, the CIA and get that information directly to the president so that they can avoid like an actual nuclear war. Yeah, I, I believe the States was running, uh, you call it like strategic war games. And Amaryllis Fox talks about it in Life Undercover. Like they're just 
practicing, right? They're just running a big simulation. Uh, Able Archer, I think, is what it was called. But the Soviet Union 100% believed that the United States was going to push the big red nuclear launch the nuclear weapons button before them. They won. There was nothing could convince them otherwise, which was a huge problem for the safety of you know the population of the world when you have one of the superpowers that just outright believes that this is a thing that's going to happen. And one thing that this book helped me understand is how that thinking gets compounded, right? And you talked about the confirmation bias. We mentioned like the bureaucracy of the KGB and the corporate structure of the KGB, right? How everyone's trying to get ahead of everyone else. And if they could give the right answers to the bosses, then maybe they'll get that promotion, right? One thing that we touched on is like being a KGB officer, right? Had lots of good perks, right? You lived in different housing. You had access to different grocery stores and different food. You had different benefits, right? You had like anything about your life was going to be better than the ordinary citizen if you're in KGB. So you didn't want to lose access to that. So of course you were going to do whatever the boss wanted to be able to maintain those, those things that we just take for granted, like having a car and being able to get oranges from the grocery store and stuff like that, right? And it's really like an entire country that is just compounding and compounding and compounding their confirmation virus in this belief that the West is after them, right? And it's almost astonishing on one side, and it's almost funny on the other side when you mention like the blood bank and the American government, like blind up blood, blood, like it just sounds absurd that a superpower government would believe that and not question it further than like, oh, okay, this is obviously real. So yeah, we need to, okay, good. We, we know that now. So that's a good thing. And like, not even think twice about, hey, maybe we should verify this, right? It seems absurd. It's astonishing. And on one hand, it's also funny. It's just, it's so strange to read about thought structure of the KGB. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, it's, you always want to like add a boy your superior. You know, like if they give you something to look for, you want to go, yeah, good job. Look at, look at how good you are. Like you never want to undermine your superior because it could just ruin your career. They might even just be like, Mm, no, I still don't believe you. We're going to go forward with this anyways. And also you're under arrest. <laughs> like it's this weird, like glad handing system that it really, you know, it really destroys the purpose of, of, a, of a intelligence agency. Like information gathering is to be able to find out the truth and not just like confirm the things that you already think are true. Well, and we see some of this truth play out in Oleg himself. We talked about his affair and he eventually has a divorce and that's a huge, a huge no-no when it comes to the KGB. No, no. If you're in the KGB and you're married, you don't get divorced. And Oleg understands that it's it could be career suicide for him. He basically gets gets his promotion pulled. He's got to come back to the country and he's got to live and work basically in an office building and he's doing a nothing job, right? He's, it's not like he's doing anything uh, that he feels is worthwhile within the KGB. And it's not, he, he almost needs to rebuild himself with his new marriage and taking courses and learning new languages before he gets the opportunity to leave the country again and go to England, right? And start being a double agent for MI6. So you see that in Oleg, like if you fuck up in the KGB, 
even though getting divorced was pretty serious in the eyes of the KGB, he basically gets shelled for se- shelved for several years. And like, could you imagine like working a shitty office job and not having any glimpse or any like not even being able to to like think about or be hopeful for your own future and here's someone who just somehow powers through everything that put him everything that was against him and everything that you know stalled out his career and he was able to come out of it again which is quite astonishing when you when you understand that the KGB operates black and white you're either out or you're in right so it's amazing that Oleg was a bit was able to make a comeback. Yeah, he almost, I mean, I don't want to use the term gets lucky, but um, his brother dies, right? And uh, his brother was like a decorated KGB agent. And so it kind of boosts his family's standing, right? Like, oh, your brother was this like respected and highly decorated KGB agent. Um, you know, he didn't die an honorable death. He basically drank himself to death. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of... Uh, it kind of props him up a little bit, right? Like it, it gives his family some respect again and helps him kind of get promoted and start working his way back up. But it's really interesting to see it on both sides of things because the Brits at this point have a team specifically for, it's specifically dedicated to, I think his code name was Nocton at the time, or maybe it had become Sunbeam by then. And there's, it's, there's like five different code names that they use for him. And then like the, uh, the CIA has different code names once they start to figure out who he is and, it's wild, all the different, uh, you know, the red tape that gets involved. But they have a team dedicated specifically to him. They have an escape plan if he needs to try to get out of Russia. They have ways to try to communicate with him. And obviously, when he gets sent back to this desk job, he kind of just has to lay low and ride it out. And there's like a two-year window of him riding it out where that team is just on standby. You know, they have people in Soviet Russia. They have people back in England that are all just on standby wondering like, man, is he dead? Is he locked in a prison somewhere? Is he being tortured every day? You know, what happened to him? There's no contact. And they just keep, he was such a valuable asset that they just kept those teams on standby for years until he can really flip his career back around and get himself back in place. Like it's wild, the waiting game that's involved in this like we think of spy work as like james bond and whatever and it's all action but it's it's really crazy how many people were behind the scenes just waiting and waiting and waiting and following the same routines you know like they talk about building like a just in case escape plan like when he's working in his posting in england they're like well if you get captured and taken back to russia we need to have a plan in place in case we need to try to like smuggle you out or something you know and ways that you can communicate And so they just set up a team with an entire plan where like every single day they have to go buy this one specific shop wearing this specific outfit to see because that's like the signal point. And then that'll signal that he needs to make a brush contact somewhere and then how that brush contact works will will uh, indicate if he needs to get out or if he's in trouble or if he just needs to make contact or whatever it is. And those people for years, even while he's in England, are just on standby doing the same routine over and over and over and over again, waiting for the day that maybe this comes up or maybe it never does, but just years of doing the same thing. And they talk about how that team, since they had to meet at a uh, bread shop, was the first place. And they talk about how they just accumulated like (laughs) an entire apartment of stale bread. And like since their apartment is bugged, 
they always have to come up with like new reasons of why the fuck they're going to the store to get bread. You know, like it's, it's like being in a play. You have to play this part and it's just every day of your life. And there was something to do with chocolate bars involved in the signal. So they just always had old stale chocolate bars in their pocket. Like again, you're on standby. It's a just in case, but you have to go through the actions all the time, right? Because somebody might pick up, you know, oh, there's these, you know, these uh, diplomats from the West that are here in Soviet Russia and you, they might notice if you're only doing this routine when Oleg is back in his home country, it's like, oh, they go to the bread shop every single day when he's in country and then they never go when he's out back working in England again. So you have to stick to it because anything could be a sign that you're up to something. And it's crazy, like just for this one agent, how many different people were involved in this in massive system just just to make sure you have all your bases covered at all times. What's surprising is that at this point, it's really only his Nocton team that knows who he is. And when you think of just like the amount of money that would go into keeping an office committee going or an office team going or just paying their wages, like that's like huge sums of taxpayers' dollars, and I'm not complaining about that, right? I'm not making an argument like, oh, they shouldn't have put all this time and effort and money into just keeping Oleg's file alive and well when they couldn't hear from him, right? It's it's astonishing how many resources went into keeping Oleg's file alive and well while he was basically doing what he had to do to stay alive and to not blow his cover, right? Like it's something that doesn't really come up when you think of fictional stories about spies. Spies, there's, you know, there's the, there's the office, but the spy's out doing his own thing. And it almost seems like he's capable of doing everything by himself. Right. Whereas the reality is, is there's like a whole team of people that are working for you to make sure that the job gets done. Right. And that's one thing that I appreciate about, uh, ben McIntyre's account of Oleg's stories, he he gives a lot of credit where it's due when it comes to just the team in MI6 and what they're doing day to day and and in some situations hour by hour to make sure that they got a plan in place for whatever happens with Oleg. For sure. And to your point, you know, a lot of the information that they're getting from him isn't uh, immediately actionable, right? Because a lot of the time he's feeding them information, but it's too close to him. Or obviously, you know, if, if a spy from whatever, um, department gets fingered, then they have to look at like who had access to that information. And if that starts stacking up, you know, like, Oh, well, Oleg was one of the many people that would have, and then it happens again. And they're like, Oh, there's all these people. Oh, and Oleg also would have been part of that list. And then it happens again. And it's like too many times he's on the list of people that would have been privy to that information. So they're really just storing it. Like he's feeding them information, but they can't act on it immediately. They can start, you know, um, you know, if they know there's spies in country, they can start, you know, finding ways to feed them useless information. You know, like you said, the chicken feed, the stuff that's, it's true enough to seem like worthwhile information, but nothing that can be damaging, you know, to their own country. So they, there's sometimes they have to leave spies in their own country just because it could, you know, put Oleg at risk if they were to act on it right away. 
So you've got this operation in place that would be taking a ton of money to run and all the information you're getting, you can't even use yet because you just want to get more and more and more and more. Eventually you'll be able to act on it once, you know, he's ready to, you know, come home from the cold, I guess, and, uh, and live a safe and cozy life and finally defect. But if you do it too soon, you might blow the cover or, you know, you lose the opportunity to gather a bunch more information and, you know, and, and if he gets caught, you know, like there's a lot of risks in play that you might lose the value of a lot of that information if he gets caught. And now he knows a lot about your system. So it's this weird balance of like, when do we call it? How far do we go? And they compare it to gambling a lot of times in the book. It's a wild world, man, of spycraft. And I, I think Ben McIntyre did a really good job of showing us the ins and outs without it feeling like a lecture. You know, he's not beating us over the head with it. He gives us a lot of like comedic breaks as well. You know, like there's some pretty funny moments in there when he's teaching you a bunch about spycraft, but then he'll give you an example like uh, one of the agents had to leave either an apple peel or an orange peel on a windowsill to signal if they wanted to meet up. And then, then they would place a beer bottle cap in a bathroom stall somewhere but the agent left a ginger beer bottle cap <laughs> in the stall and the team that was responsible for him stayed up all night bouncing communications back and forth trying to figure out if there was any possibility that this was like some sort of secret connection that like maybe he's being followed or something's been compromised or whatever and then like finally after an entire night of trying to figure it out they came to the conclusion they're like well I think it's just that's what he happened to have you know he didn't have like a legitimate beer bottle cap but there's like so much of this the the paranoia would be insane because you're like well what if we get it wrong and we blow the whole thing right it's a wild world and when you look at his time spent in england like like you said they kind of kept it under wraps right like there was a very small team that knew who he was knew his name or even knew that there was you know a double agent in england for the you know for the kgb and you know the brits have two agencies there right you have mi5 and mi6 which i from what i gathered is kind of similar to like the fbi and the cia right one's more local one's more international and they're supposed to work together but as you know bureaucratic departments do they mostly tend to clash and so mi6 is keeping this a secret from mi5 and so now you have to worry about your own agents in country potentially discovering him and blowing his cover and, 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 you know, the KGB finding out that he's a double agent just because they were doing their job well, doing exactly what they're supposed to do. So you have to like help him hide from your own agency just to continue the operation that you're running. Like it's a spider web, man. There was an interesting quote. I wish I could remember who said it, but they, they say that spycraft is essentially a wilderness of mirrors. And I, I thought it couldn't have been more on point. And you mentioned, uh, just the frustration with having the information, like you've got it, it's there. Ole gave it to you, but you can't use it yet, right? And as a reader, it almost seems frustrating because you're just like, oh man, like you guys are in the middle of a cold war. Maybe sharing some of that stuff might be beneficial, right? And you almost want to think like, well, fuck him if he gets caught because there's something bigger, right? It's bigger than just Oleg and his career as a double agent, right? I thought it was funny when uh, MI6 finally started sharing information with the CIA. And they're like, here you go. 
And CIA's like, what's this? And they're like, well, do with it as you please, but this is kind of important. And then CIA's like, CIA's like well, we're the CIA. Like, where did you get this from? And MI6 is like, well, we can't say. And the CIA is like, no, no, we're the CIA. You need to tell us. And they're like, nope. <laughs> yeah, the CIA doesn't respond well to be told that's need to know and you don't, <laughs> you know? Just as a reader trying to think about a situation like that, and not that I'll ever be a person in like a, a high political p- position or even like hold a position in like an intelligence agency or anything like that. But how do you make that call? Even as something as simple as the uh, the ginger beer bottle cap, right? Because that's part of the spy craft is you're also providing a profile of yourself to the agency. Like Oleg, the agency, like MI6 understands Oleg. So when he does give out little crumbs, they can pick up on it and they recognize it. And they can make it an accurate interpretation of what this means. Uh, what's the severity of this? Do we need to act on this now? Is this something like, okay, you know, maybe this is a couple days away, right? And so even when you're, you know, you're the CIA and you get something that's like, well, if this is true, then this is big. Then the frustrations that you must feel as an agency or even as somebody that's in a senior position to be able to make that call to use it or just put it on the back burner or just disregard the entire thing, right? It's it's frustrating. And I struggled as a reader in some moments because I really don't understand. Well, for one, I I don't really have a very good understanding of like the political situation at the time. I kind of understand like the bigger picture, right? Oh, it's a cold war. Uh, nuclear war might happen. Oh, okay. That's pretty serious, right? But just understanding like when to make a move and when not, like I found myself like, I really don't know what the what the right choice is here, right? And when when I encounter situations like that as a reader, it just makes me want to read more because I'm like, well, what the hell happens next, right? Right, and when you consider the potential consequences, right? Like like you were saying, when they're starting to feed information to the CIA, you know, like Grzebski's letting the MI letting MI six know that the current American military movements could start a nuclear war. So they're feeding that information to the CIA and the CIA is like, well, if we're going to pass this to the president, we need to know where it comes from because we're not just going to pass this along to the president without having any background on it to know if it's like got a solid foundation or not. And they're like, well, we're not going to tell you that because it's going to blow our guy's cover. So now as the CIA, you have to go, you know, do we kind of sweep this under the rug because we don't believe it's, you know, true or at least you know plausible enough or do you pass it along to the president because if you don't pass it along to the president and it turns out to be true there could be a nuclear attack that happened simply because you made the wrong choice it it would weigh so heavy on you every day that like one little slip up you make could get hundreds of people if not thousands of people killed potentially right and you just have to make a judgment call and hope that it's right and sometimes you wouldn't find out for years if it was right or not but that moment is the catalyst for an interesting turn of events when the cia decides like we need to know where this information is coming from and so they start their own little side investigation to try to figure out who this information who who this information's coming from right and they do their own little mole hunt and then so now you have Oleg 
working for the KGB and working for MI6. MI6 is passing information to the CIA, and now the CIA is trying to figure out who Oleg is. So it's like three different departments that he's trying to hide from, essentially. It's it's unbelievable. And the interesting part is that the agent that becomes the double agent, the CIA agent that ends up feeding information to this, uh, the KGB is part of the team looking for Gorjevsky in the CIA. Like it's like the, the wilderness of mirrors is the most perfect way to put it because it's just, you never know who's working for who, who's the right person to give the information to, whether the information is true, who you can trust. It's, it's so intense in this book. Like really, once we reach the point where the CIA is involved as well, you're you're just constantly like, what is going to happen and who's going to find out what? And I think he did a really good job of giving us information at the right time and not giving it to us too soon. You know, like he'll let you know that like, oh, the CIA has started, you know, this, this hunt for Gorjevsky and that there is someone in that group of investigators that's feeding information to the KGB and then he kind of just lets that slide for a while and goes back to Gorjevsky's story. And you're like, oh man, like our, it made it feel like a movie, right? There's this like almost this dramatic irony that we know this thing that Gorjevsky doesn't know, but there's, we still don't know how much they know yet. And so he's doing his thing and you're like, oh dude, like, I just want to tell him, you know, I want to be like, hey, Oleg, like the CIA is looking for you, man. <laughs> Like you gotta watch out. Like, and it's like, I know all of this happened years and years and years ago, but you feel like, like you want to let them know you want to like help them out. And it's, I I thought it was, it was set up so well. The structure to this book is it's just fantastic in, in giving you just enough to feed that intensity, but not enough for you to be like, Oh, okay. Well, I kind of know what happens next now. And the other crazy thing is Oleg's on a second marriage and he's raised a couple of kids. And, you know, I don't think Ben McIntyre really does justice to just the parental struggles that can happen just with raising a family and being in a marriage, right? So you've got like these three humongous, ginormous, like big mammoths of intelligence agencies that are just trying to figure out what the fuck's going on and who Oleg is. And meanwhile, the guy's like still raising a family at home and you can't discount all the struggles that comes with that. Right. So, you know, and so here's this guy, his wife doesn't know he's a double agent. He's raising a couple kids. They're over with him at England in this point, right? His whole family's over there. Right. And his family's just love in being in the West. And, you know, his wife's just like super stoked on being able to go shopping. There's all these different shops, right. You know, and he's raising, uh, a couple of kids that are learning English and he's ecstatic, right? That they're learning English, right? In England. And meanwhile, it's like, you know, like I thought about what I would do if I was Oleg, right? And you're just like sitting in the armchair at home and I can't even imagine the amount of energy that you would have to put into that performance to be able to play the angles, right? And keep yourself out of the the wilderness of mirror, so to speak, right? Here's a man that is incredibly patient and incredibly controlled. And I think a lot of people would envy those sort of traits, 
being able to be so controlled in moments of incredible stress and being able to manage your emotions. And I can't imagine trying to keep huge secrets from your loved ones, right? Like, oh, hey, by the way, today I slipped this folder to MI6. They gave it to the CIA. And yeah, we're okay for nuclear war for a while. I would just want to tell somebody, anybody, right? And he doesn't. And I think that just really galvanizes his character and who he is. And it just, it makes, it makes him, it makes the book so fantastic, right? Because you're just like, oh man, like he just keeps hitting home runs, right? There's no doubt that he is a man of, tremendous mental fortitude you know as as we said before he had a lot of opportunity to walk away and the brits had said had said they would honor their promise to him like we will keep your family here like we'll we'll get you out of this before it reaches a point where you're getting interrogated back in russia like you're good man you've done your duty like you can walk away from this now and live a happy life in the west with your family like and going any further is a is a huge risk and he just continues to push, push on. He believes that there's still more that he could do, even though he's already done more than pretty much any other spy in history. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 we can do more. We can do more. Like he just really puts himself in tremendous risk for the sake of trying to do what he believes is the right thing, which, which is, I think, a, an important thing to remember because there is spies that have defected both ways, right? And there, there is a lot of people on the team, the Sunbeam team and the Nocton team that say they like, they all believed that, you know, Oleg was different than any other spy. Like you usually see, you try to bribe spies or blackmail spies or whatever. And they didn't have to do any of that with Oleg. It was always like, they all had a ton of respect for him. It always felt very honorable. It always felt like he wasn't doing it for his own gain. And he just continues to take on this risk. And for the most part, you know, any any pieces in there that they have uh, from what uh, his his second wife said, it doesn't even sound like he neglected his family life through that period of time. Like, it sounded like he was a good husband and a good father through that time in England. Like, his wife really loved him and had a lot of respect for him. And so, just like you were saying, like, the different hats that he's wearing and the stress that he has to go through every day at his job, like, they're smuggling out photographs like rolls of, of uh, photographs of paperwork and that have been brought in from other spies. And on his lunch break, he would have like a half hour window where he would drop this to someone, go for his lunch and come back within a certain amount of time, just long enough for them to have handed or to, to duplicated the paperwork and the photographs and then hand it back to him. And it has to be perfectly within this window because if, if they don't complete their task in time or they can't get, that information back to him for him to replace at the office at the resident tour i believe is what they'd called it he you know he's busted that's it like and he talks about the cold sweat and the intensified heart rate and like just the fear of it all like kind of being part of the game you know and like almost every day you're taking this risk of like if one little thing goes wrong it could be the end of me and my entire family you know one thing you said there reminded me like uh, when you said cold sweat, like Oleg was also an athlete, which just even adds to his character. Like he did long distance running. It wasn't like he was just some vodka drinking double agent, right? That was just enjoying being in the West and raising a, raising his family. Like he not only put in the work uh, mentally 
and emotionally, but he also put it in physically, right? Like he's uh, at a young age. And I think this is, you know, just that extra, extra little bit to add to his character. Like he was, he was in shape. He wasn't like some fat bloated Russian that was, you know, eating caviar and drinking vodka all the time. I'm sure he did his fair share, right? To keep up appearances. But yeah, he was, he was an athletic individual as well. So, and I also like how when you mentioned uh, Oleg uh, and his second family, uh, it wasn't a marriage of convenience like his first one was. Like his second marriage was one that had a lot of love in it. It wasn't something that he was just doing to uh, add to his performance, right? It wasn't something that he was doing for his career. His family with his second wife, that one was genuine. And I don't get the sense at any moment that it was just something that he was just doing to keep up the charade, right? And everything that Ben McIntyre shares about Oleg up to this point, you just, he's just, he just seems like a really solid, good guy. As cliche as that may sound, you're just like, okay, this guy's it. Like, if there was ever a good guy that was living a good life, like, and doing the right thing, it would be Oleg Gordievsky, right? And man, like, he almost seems like, he would be like a fantastic person just to sit down and have a cup of coffee with, right? If you could just have like an unfiltered conversation with him. Oh man, like I don't think that I even have the intellectual prowess to like be able to even have a conversation with a man like that, even if it was casual, right? Over a cup of coffee. I think he would be really hard to keep up with, you know, like clearly this is a person that has immense levels of drive. You know, like you said, he was, he was an athlete. He's a double agent. He kept up with his family. This seems like almost like a David Goggins-esque kind of human being, you know, like someone that is always on the go. Not, there's not a lot of sitting around with a person like this and the immense amount of information that they would have. I wouldn't even know what to ask him, you know, like, and if I did ask him, his answer would probably be too long for me to remember what it was anyways. Like, it's he's really a unique character, and I think, I think it's just you know, happenstance that he was the one that fell into this spot. You know, like there's a lot of other spies out there that had they been the double agent at this point, he likely would not have filled the same role as Oleg. So as you mentioned early, earlier, there is a pivotal moment in this book where he has a, a, a very big choice to make that, uh, the whole thing kind of hinges on it, right? And it tests his morals, and uh, it really tests who he is as a human being. And as much as I would love to really dive into that, because there's a lot to talk about there, you know, it's it's a pretty rough rough call he has to make. I think one of my greatest joys of this book is that moment, you know, and how everything plays out, the intensity of everything, and, and really getting to see who Oleg is as a human being. And I think it it would be really hard for us to press on further without starting to chip away at that, you know? And I'd like to leave that for for the listeners to actually experience for themselves in the first time through. Uh, and trust me, it's worth it. Even, you know, when the, when the wilderness of mirrors really starts to close in, too, there's a lot, lot more there that, uh, that just makes this a fantastic read. It really feels like a Hollywood spy story, right? And the intensity gets almost kind of hard to handle at some points. And uh, I think I'd just like to leave 
you know, that whole, I guess, chapter, so to speak, uh, to be an authentic experience for the viewers. Yeah, I would have to agree. Uh, I think there's, there's some books we're okay to spoil all the way through. And, you know, even in our first season, uh, when we read Elspeth Beard's book, we were like, okay, this one moment we're absolutely not talking about because we need, you know, we need people to have their, let's call it a fight club moment, right? Their first time experiencing something. As much as I love people listening to this podcast and listening to us discuss books and getting into it, uh, there's still some stuff that, um, you know, I guess we use our discretion how deep we go and when to pull back. And I think this is a good moment to to kind of leave it like, you know, I think anybody that's interested in this book at this point, or if you've made it this far into the podcast, this is a book that you should take the time to read and enjoy re-encountering the stuff that we've already mentioned. But when it comes to, let's say like the part three, I believe this book is in three parts. It might be in four parts, but I believe it's in part three when we get into the heavy stuff. Yeah, I hope you have your own Fight Club moment with it because I was, I'm going to say that I was surprised and I was also not surprised with uh, Oleg's decision-making when it comes to the, the latter half of the book. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful experience, man. It's uh, it's one of those things where I thought a lot about, like, I mean, like you said, there's a lot of moments in this book where you think about what choice would I make in this in this position, but this one especially is it's a dilemma that I think would, would break most people. You know, I think a lot of people would crumble under the pressure. It was really, it was a a fantastic way to kind of climax that story, you know? And I just want to say overall, like, so this is my second time reading this book. I will admit that I had a harder time getting into it the second time through. I think, I think it's really just establishing the foundation of spycraft and geopolitics and stuff uh, that happens in the early part of the book that I already knew I had a hard time getting through that. And then once I got past that and it really dives more into Oleg's story and the actual hands-on spy work, I I got right into it again. I had a really good time with it. So it is a book that you could read a second time through. I think Ben McIntyre, who I'm pretty sure I've called Macintosh a couple times this episode, uh, (laughs) I think he did a fantastic job. It's the McAfee all over again. It's the MC names and just mixing them up. But uh (laughs) I think he did a fantastic job of, you know, establishing just enough groundwork again, just like we had with uh, Red Notice. Like you could write an entire book on geopolitics of this era, you know, and the whole history of uh, the kind of unending Cold War of uh, Russia and the United States. You could write a whole book on it, but it's a very important skill to be able to establish just enough to give you the rec- the required foundation for the story that you're telling um and not so much that that it's it just feels like a you know political lecture and i think ben mcintyre did a fantastic job he he did a really good job of painting a picture of oleg's state of mind you know through all of these stages um, especially from a man that would be so hard to relate to. I think most people have never experienced the level of pressure that he would have. And most of us, you know, everyone has secrets, but, you know, the potential damage that those secrets could cause, you know, none of us have secrets like Oleg had, you know. And uh, he's a truly unique human being. I firmly believe that uh, he was almost meant for this role in history. There's a lot of other spies that would not have been able to get through this the way he did, and it could have entirely changed the world that we live in currently. 
And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a real pleasure to read, to hear his story again. And uh, I might actually even read it again a third time at some point down the road. Um, it's, it's just a really cool reminder of that, that era of time. So I recently watched uh, an interview with Ben McIntyre, and he's talking about Oleg. But he mentioned that, you know, he was kind of tooting his own horn. Ben McIntyre was tooting his own horn. He said, hey, I've written, like, all of these books about spies. And so this is definitely, this story is his wheelhouse, right, when it comes to writing about spies, spycraft, uh, geopolitics, and how everything all kind of webs, all webs together. Uh, but he said, like most of the spies and the work that they're doing back then, today, even in the future, doesn't even come close to the impact that Oleg Gordievsky had on just the, the safety of the planet and geopolitics, right? And so after I read or after I, I watched that interview and I was rereading portions of this book, it only further cemented how unbelievable Oleg's story is, but it is believable because, you know, we have the facts in the book, right? And, and to not really want the credit, to, to want the fame, to want the glory that comes with it, it's got to be an incredibly unique experience to just, yeah, I did all that stuff and it was incredibly significant, but does not want anything to do with any of the attention or any of the acclaim uh, when it came to his personal decisions came to handling these state secrets, right? Two things that this book really left me to chew on. One, it kind of made me wonder if I've ever met any famous spies, you know? Because <laughs> like, like you said, for him to go through all this and then just be some guy, you know? There's someone out there, there's probably a handful of people out there who know him, they believe they know him very well, and they would have no idea. There's a chance that someone has read this book and been like, oh, wow, this is a crazy story. And they know him, you know? Yeah. Like, but they don't know that they know him. They just know some guy, you know, some old man. And in reality, that's him. It made me really wonder. I'm like, maybe, maybe I've met someone that lived this crazy life. It also made me realize how brutally naive we are to the goings on of these, of these agencies, you know, like, there's a lot of people out there that had no idea how close the world came to a nuclear war during that period of time. You know, Russia's paranoia escalating to the point of damn near a preemptive nuclear attack. And, you know, not entirely one man's actions, but largely the doings of, of Oleg Gordievsky saved that battle. And people were just living their life. They had no clue how close it got. And a lot of people will never know. If you're not reading these books, you'd have no clue just how close we were to, you know, a cataclysmic event, like world-changing war. And, uh, you know, it, it just, it goes to show, like, and I know I've said this a bunch of times, I'll probably say it like a hundred more times on this podcast, just how important it is to read books. You know, like we get, a lot of our media is glorified stories from movies and stuff. And like, that's why I love so much that, we've decided to do, you know, nonfiction stories. Like we could have covered books that are just like Lord of the Rings or whatever else, you know, but that's the coolest thing about these stories is that like, this is legitimate history you're getting here, you know? And like, 
this season, especially, there's been a lot of cool things we learned. You know, look at the whole McAfee story. All of that happened. And most people are like, oh, the antivirus guy, you know, like (laughs) there's so much more to that. And it's just the knowledge written in the pages of these books is just truly a gift that a lot of people choose to just not experience. And uh, I'm stoked that we have this platform, uh, whatever it might become, to like share our appreciation for it and have the ability to, you know, have listeners share other books that they got that feeling from. And they're like, hey, man, if you think that story's crazy, try this one, you know, and we get to pass that knowledge back and forth. So I guess with that said, what do you want to give for an Octane rating on The Spy and the Trader? That's a tough one. Um, I want to hear yours first because I want to see what yours was on a first time through. Oh, okay. I'm going to give this book a 94. I think this is a book that just about anyone can pick up and read and enjoy. If you're more interested in politics, you're going to get a lot out of this book. If you're just interested in the orange peels, the bottle caps, the Safeway bags, the Mars bars, and uh, setting up a signal site, you're going to enjoy this book, right? If you just want to read a good story and you don't really care how the Russian names are pronounced, you're also going to enjoy this book, right? So that's why I'm giving this book like our highest rated because I think that anyone who likes to read nonfiction, and even if you are a huge fan of fiction and you just like a good story, this is a nonfiction book that you could read. It doesn't necessarily read like fiction, but it it has an arc to it, right? And so I think that you'll appreciate it too. And that's why I give it such a high rating. And I think sort of my last point to why I gave it such a, a, a 94 is because I still feel like the Cold War is current events. And I think because Oleg's decisions and how he walked that that tightrope, how he maintained that facade, that charade, you know, that that performance, I think even that in itself and what he was able to deliver to the West is so significant that I think it's important for anyone to read too. Yeah, it it I mean it it really is shocking how untold this story is. I mean, it's kind of hard to say cuz there is a book on it, but like this is the kind of thing that I would have thought would have Hollywood movies written about it, you know, like it's amazing that this has happened and we haven't heard more about it. Just because like you said, how significant these events were. I do think a lot of people would appreciate this book. I'm going to give it a 91. And I think it's a little bit biased because I think my rating would have been closer to yours on my first time through just because I had a little bit of a harder time getting into the early pages of the book on my second time through. I think it might have knocked it down a little, but this truly is an amazing story. And like you said, I think there's a lot of different people that could appreciate this. I, I think it's worth trying. And Honestly, if you like this book, like we said in the beginning, uh, Ben McIntyre has written many similar books. Uh, the spy story world is is one that he has conquered, you know, and uh, and they're all great. I've read uh, probably three of them now, and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed all of them. You know, like we said, he does a great job of letting you into the minds of the people that he's writing about, painting a picture of the significance, the geopolitical significance of these events, and, and giving people credit uh, where it's due. I think he's a great author. I've enjoyed any one of his books that I've read, and... Uh, if you like this one, if you give it a try and you like this one, definitely try out the rest. And it's all kind of a similar era. So I think he's a great author and I've really enjoyed all of his work. This is kind of like 
the last book before we get to the big one, right? This is this is what we've been building to. Like all throughout this season, all the books that we've read, um, even our episode with Mitch, and we've we've just been coming through this whole season of crime and conspiracy. And now that we've got this one behind us, we've just got this behemoth. Like this is this is gonna be absolutely insane. And I am so fucking excited to read our next book. You know what this is? I've, I'm going to make a video game reference because with my uh, new PC here, that's what I've been doing with most of my time is gaming. This is the moment where you walk into like a big open space in a video game and there's a bunch of like health potions on the ground and supplies and you realize <laughs> like, oh shit, this is, this is where I come upon the boss. Like, this is obviously a clear room for a large battle, and there's a bunch of supplies laying here that I probably wouldn't need unless the shit's going down. And that's exactly where we are right now. There's some ominous music going on in the background, and, you know, it's about to get heavy. I mean, I feel like I don't even need to introduce it because we've talked about it, you know, twice every episode this whole season. But the (laughs) next book that we're going to be covering is Chaos. Charles Manson, The CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s by Tom O'Neill. And let me tell you, this is a wild ride, man. I am so excited to cover this book. I pre-ordered all of these books, so I had them all together before we started reading and recording this season. Ended up going back to the same bookstore to order some different books. And, you know, when you punch in the phone number and the account comes up, and just by chance, I've had the same guy up at the counter a couple of times. And he's like, oh, have you read Chaos yet? And he just starts talking. Like, and I'm like, no, man, I haven't. We're, we're doing this whole podcast thing, and we're reading all these books. But Chaos is the last one. And he's like, dude, let me tell you. And he's this. And every time I even like walk into the bookstore, and he like pulls up my account. And it's happened like twice, maybe three times now. He just instantly gets switched on when he knows that we're reading Chaos. He's... And so that gets me excited. And like, I know like you've been this book, you've been through this book and some other people I know have read this book. And so this is like one where I'm just like, okay, it's time. It's just like, just amplified through and through to see the insanity that Tom O'Neill uncovers. Oh yeah, man. Like I've never been huge on conspiracy theories. I've always been a bit of a skeptic. I like to consider myself an optimistic skeptic, you know, like there's a lot of conspiracies that I would like to be true, but I'm like, until I have some more proof, I'm, I'm not really buying in. And, uh, I read this book and a lot of the claims in this book are substantiated. Right. And so he really covers his bases. So this like almost restructured my brain, man. Like there's some (laughs) shit that goes down in this book where I was like, Oh damn like there's a lot behind the scenes that we don't know about and a lot of it is uncovered for the first time in tom o'neill's book like it it kind of shook the foundation a bit man like there was some people that were not very happy about this book coming out and uh one of them being vincent bugliosi who wrote helter skelter who which was for the longest time was basically the you know the bible on the charles manson case and And man, like, I'm so excited for you to go through this and for us to do that episode. And like, I'm excited to go back through it because it's a big book, man. Like, it's a lot of data to process. Like, I got it right here in front of me. 
And it's like, let's see. What's the page count? How many pages we got? Um, yeah, it's like almost 500 pages in this book. <laughs> yeah, and even the story of how this book came to be, you know, like this book was not Tom O'Neill's intention. But it just came to fruition, I guess. Like it's, I've been looking forward to this for a while. And part of starting this podcast, I was kind of like, this book's got to be in there. Like, I got to find a way to make this work. And here we are, man. I I know there's a lot of people that I talk to that are real excited about this. So I think it's probably going to be our most popular episode. I'm really hoping people give us some feedback and uh, let us know how they, how they kind of received the book and whether it changed their mind about conspiracies. And like I said earlier in this episode, you know, the Spy and the Traitor covered a lot about the downsides of the KGB and kind of the dark side of that. But it's important to remind ourselves that, you know, it's not all black and white. It's not like the West is the good guys and, you know, Russia's the the Bond villain, despite the fact that it gets painted that way. There's a lot of dark shit that happens in that, that world, and uh, it happens, you know, all around the globe. It it's They've all done some shady shit, and we really get to see it here. It's, uh, man, I'm like, I can't wait. I'm so pumped. I don't even know what else to say. Like, I just want to be like, I'm so excited. That's where I'm at. (laughs) So I appreciate everyone listening to this podcast episode and any of the other episodes that you've listened to. Uh, my name is Jonah Condro. Uh, don't try emailing the podcast because I'm really bad at checking the email. Um, I actually let our (laughs) host subscription expire. And, uh, so if you, if you... (laughs) tried listening to a podcast over the last few weeks and couldn't be because we owed some money but we're all caught up now and that's all good but yeah i'm jonah condro the best place to reach me as i check it multiple times a day because i'm addicted to the internet you can find me on instagram and i'm just like at jonah condro uh drop me a dm and if you're one of the people that uh like leaving comments on our Podbean feed then absolutely do that too and we will get around and respond to all those all that feedback as well Right. And we actually, uh, speaking of people leaving comments, we had a really interesting moment recently. We received a message from Robert Remington's daughter of Robert Remington wrote uh, runaway devil. And that was, that was really cool. Like I never really knew what this podcast was going to be. I haven't really looked at any of the data on viewership. I kind of have this thing where I don't even really want to know how many people listen because I just thoroughly enjoy doing the podcast and I don't ever want, you know, that number to affect the way that I do it. And, uh, you know, we've, I think we've got a good structure. We're both really enjoying doing this. We've gotten some feedback for sure, but like, I don't ever want it to be about that. And so it was really cool just to have like that connection with a listener, you know, someone that's tied that closely to the book reached out and I was like, Oh, like, wow, like, hey, every time we get listener messages, it's like, oh, people are listening. That's pretty cool. But this one was like, man, like, it's pretty cool that it reached someone that close to the book. I was I was pretty excited about that. And so, yeah, so please feel free to give us feedback, whatever you want it to be, you know, even a thumbs up, thumbs down. You know, we'll take negative feedback, too. If you thought we, you know, had trash opinions on a book, I'm happy to hear it. And uh and of course, as always, reach out to us with uh, with book suggestions. Like that's really the number one reason for getting into this podcast is just 
share in the experience of reading. I am enlightened underscore dirtbag on Instagram. You know, Jonah gave you his if you want to see any of our life behind the scenes. Or, of course, you're always welcome to reach out to Enlightened Dirtbags podcast on Instagram and uh, follow us. Keep updated with uh, release dates and any extra little bits of information uh, about the books we've read. Anything new we find, we'll uh, post on there. And there's going to be a new segment coming up on the podcast here soon enough, a video segment that you'll be able to follow. So it's going to dive into some similar stories a little more, and it's going to stray off and uh, almost be a little bit controversial. So uh, I'm excited to see where it goes from here, man. 